Welcome to Attached, the Summer Book Club Edition. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods out of UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. You guys, we're all together. Yay! For the first time in a real long time. I've missed you guys. So long. So long. So, what's going on? I have a child now. Yay! Congratulations! Congratulations! I know, it's kind of, it's crazy. I mean, for the most part, he's a really great baby. And then every once in a while, a (laughs) demon possesses him. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Was it? Was it? Yeah, it wasn't yesterday, but the day before. Like, he, Chelsea and I were just, like, at our wit's end. We didn't know what to do with him anymore. Oh, my gosh. It's when you take a break, and you know that, like, him screaming for five minutes, it'll be fine. And then you come back, and you, you reassess. Give each other a high yeah. five, say, we can do this. There. <laughs> we've conquered more together. This child will not bring us down. We've got this. And, like, oh, we've earned this glass of wine today. <laughs> <laughs> And the second. They're really good at teaching you about how much you're capable of that you never knew that you were capable of. Yeah. Like, it's just the relentlessness Mm -hmm. of being a parent. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stop. It's like, oh, I don't, like, I can't, like, tap out for, like, just a couple of days. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny. I didn't know that's how it worked. I mean. (laughs) Stop it. You did. That's so funny. Stop it, you did. You did. Stop it. We warned you. (laughs) We told you. (laughs) Yeah, and and, uh, he he can't move yet. No. No, he can't. I mean, he wiggles. He's he's a good wiggler, but that's Uh, that's all he can do right now. It's not the same. So I think I shared in earlier in spring, in an earlier episode, uh, first, that I had decided that buying up as many seeds as possible was going to be necessary during a pandemic in case I needed to feed my family from my two-foot square garden in the backyard. I think second, I updated yeah, yeah. that we had successfully transplanted a few of them, but not all. And now I will update that uh, most of the plants have lived, not all of them. Yeah. Yay! But they, they're not producing anything. No. So <laughs> we have three tomato plants that have produce no tomatoes. Uh, The other day I got excited to see what the garlic was doing down there and I pulled it out and it was the same exact clove I had put in the ground months ago. I just maintained the life of one (laughs) clove of garlic. Listen, listen, that's one life. It doesn't make any sense. And so the only thing, the peppers, nothing. We've got nothing from the peppers. Um, cilantro's long gone. Are there any flowers? Are there any flowers no, at all? There's, no, there's plants? not. Tomatoes made a, a good show of like, we're going to produce and had a few flowers. Yeah. And that was months ago and nothing since, just the green leaves. Uh, the only thing I have is an abundance of basil. Um, yeah, which is right. You can't feed your family on basil. So thankfully, oh. I mean, you can make a lot of pesto. You can mm-hmm. flavor your food with basil. True. So the food you get, right. your family can, it can all that, lovely. all that takeout that we order to survive the pandemic. <laughs> we just put a little bit of basil on top. And uh, <laughs> so now we've freshened it up a little bit of green. Yeah, now we've tried pumpkins. Uh, my husband and daughter successfully Ooh. started some pumpkin plants from seeds. But then I noticed the other day they were like, oh, did you see our pumpkin plants? And they pointed out this window to the side of our house, which is not like there's nothing over there except grass. And now pumpkin plants in the direct middle of the lawn <laughs> that we have, we have to mow, mow around um, and eventually will probably produce nothing as well. So, yeah, that's what, that's what we've been up to. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Feeling a lot of... I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, a lot of sense, a big sense of mastery in my (laughs) gardening skills. Listen, green leaves are very challenging to keep green. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I feel like that's good. Mm -hmm. That's an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. So during this quarantine, this epic, never-ending quarantine that we all find ourselves in, um, I have discovered, as if I'm the first person to discover this, uh, TikTok. Yes, you have. <laughs> I've benefited. <laughs> have either oh, of you I, downloaded TikTok? 
I mean, my wife has, but I, I don't know. I'm missing out on the benefits of seeing Patricia on TikTok, I'm oh, guessing. No, 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 no. I'm not making TikToks. I'm just watching other people's TikToks. I'm pretty sure that's the best way to TikTok. Um, I'm not that clever. Um, I love TikTok. It is my favorite thing. I have abandoned Twitter and Instagram almost completely for TikTok. Wow. I love it. It's fantastic. It's hilarious. I think it's a perfect combination of hilarious people um, and super hot guys. What else do you need? I mean, For me, what else do you need? That's I mean, my, that's my TikTok. All right. That's <laughs> my TikTok. Your TikTok will be whatever your TikTok is. But this is my TikTok. <laughs> Again, it's... Patricia always reverting back to the sexual euphemisms. Like, this is my TikTok. <laughs> Specifically curated to survive her pandemic summer. You get your own. <laughs> this is yeah. my, for me, my TikTok is what it is. So I highly recommend it. Um, you know, do, do your TikTok. Get a TikTok. So um, today we are very lucky to be welcoming Dr. Eli Finkel, the author of this uh, month's book club book. The All or Nothing Marriage. Uh, Dr. Finkel will be with us very, very shortly. But before we get to that, I wanted to check in with you guys and see what, right off the bat, your reactions were to the book. So this is actually the second time I'm reading this Ooh. book. You know, oh. humble brag out here. You know, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I'm a long time Eli imagine, J. Tinkle fan. Imagine that being like everybody's humble, humble brag is that I've read a marriage book multiple times. I love it so much. And it is a super humble brag. Right? Um, but the first time I read this, because it came out, what, in 2017, 2018? I wasn't married. Didn't have, I don't remember exactly. I don't, um, didn't have a kid. Uh, I think my wife and I were engaged, but revisiting it now has made me like the book even more. Oh, right? cool. Um, because, like, uh, I think my exposure to marriage that at that point was basically <laughs> um, <laughs> couples in therapy who, yeah. don't, you know, who don't come in normally under the best of terms. Yeah. And, you know, like, just observing other people's marriages. But um, what, I, what I appreciate about uh, the book is is really like the formulation he uses of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This idea that throughout the course of your marriage, there's going to be times when you ascend and descend what you need and what your experience is, right? right. Um, and that was kind of driven home to me. I think I read the book and then a few months later, Chelsea and I moved in together and then I broke both of my shoulders. Mm, oh my <laughs> and, gosh, that's right. And so, and that actually, you know, was pretty indicative of, I wasn't helping Chelsea self-actualize at that point, and she, I sure could, didn't have the means to do that. But it also really helped, I think, build a pretty strong foundation for our relationship where we know that there's going to be times when we need to take care of each other. Yeah. Um, and... You know, and also like reading that and kind of applying it to my own life and relationships made a lot more sense just given the context where I'm at, you know, in my life right now. I also, you know, read it as a couples therapist too. And I think that there's a lot of really good information that could be helpful for, for couples who are struggling. But sometimes too, uh, I think that couples come with long, complicated histories. And, and sometimes I'm a little bit concerned about these kind of like shortcuts mm. to improving your relationship. Because I think like for, oh. for most couples that aren't, wouldn't be considered like clinical couples that aren't in the place where they need maybe some intensive couples therapy. I think these hacks that he have are really, um, are a really good way to improve your relationship. But at the same time, like if, I think if you're in a relationship that's really stressed, there's a lot of conflict there's hasn't been any ascents into the hierarchy of needs. Right. Some of these hacks could potentially be a little bit problematic. So mm -hmm. I think just reading it under that context is important. You know, um, and this is something maybe we'll get to talk to Dr. Finkel about, but like, 
you know, most of the couples he was studying probably weren't going to see a therapist, right? If mm. you're not getting along with your partner, it's not very likely you're going to want to enroll in a study to, to <laughs> right, with your exactly. partner. So, um, but overall, I thought the insight, um, some of the examples he brought up were just really cool and really helpful. So I liked it. Fantastic. Me, me too. Overall, I, I um, really liked it as well. Um, I agree. I, I, uh, I think I reflected a lot on the content of this book and where I'm at, like currently in my own relationship, not just kind of professionally how I might apply this. Um, so uh, my family and I have been under a huge amount of stress the last few months um, that has been really magnified in quarantine um, as uh, my husband was diagnosed with a really serious illness right at the start of this pandemic. Um, and so what I what I like about his frame is that our relationships can struggle, but it's not just inherent to the relationship itself and a marker of the fact that the relationship is um, is destined to fail, but that sometimes there are other circumstances yeah. and outside stressors and things beyond our control that in those moments we can be more intentional about how to survive and thrive even in the face of such a huge amount of stress. And for that reason, I really like the love hacks as um, as a helpful frame of really kind of quick evidence-based strategies that you can use to um, remember to be grateful and share that gratitude out loud, to remember to celebrate when there are positive moments. I also really like in his description of going all in this reference to um, a relationship's unique culture. So um, I, yeah. I think about it in terms of what we've been saying a little bit in, in our house about um, like taking care of your shit before shit hits the fan, um, that when you have taken the time <laughs> like to build your relationship and build this kind of resource and this this emotional shorthand where you can connect really easily with each other because you have your own inside jokes um, uh, and your own relationship microcosm, it's something you can really lean on when shit hits the fan. Um, so I, I really appreciated that, that helpful frame. Um, yeah. uh, I think one question I was left with was um, his description of recalibrating and kind of shifting what your expectations are from the marriage um, felt like a lot of strategies that we can do outside of the relationship while maybe we're trying to ask a little bit less of it. But I was wondering about um, a little bit about what he might say about how to do some of this recalibration dyadically together in a relationship and maybe kind of um, openly, I think he, he does refer to taking an assessment, taking stock of the relationship. And um, I was just kind of wondering what that might look like while at the same time you're trying to ask less of your relationship. It could be a really tricky um, part of a marriage to, to navigate for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I For, for me, a, a lot of this book at the very beginning was kind of like a history of, of marriage in, in society, particularly kind of Western white society. Um, it, the, the history of marriage over maybe the past two or more or more centuries. Um, and not being an, uh, an active therapist, I really uh, loved that piece of it. It's always so fascinating to me how in today's society we picture and we think of marriage but then when we take this larger scope back the recognition that the meaning of marriage has changed so much so it's okay for us to be flexible in how we define and uh, the meaning we attribute to to marriage as well because it's already changed so much over over history so i like that because it it gives me um, or us or whoever flexibility in how we think of, of marriage. But one thing that I really liked in, in the opening of, of his book is kind of referencing this idea that very popular in, in the media broadly is this idea that because the divorce rate is so high and because people are marrying so much later, the idea of valuing marriage and valuing family has really diminished over the past centuries. And he really kind of attacks that narrative head, head on. And he says that the best marriages today are some of the best marriages in history. And I think that really gave me hope because so often when I hear that in the in the media about you know we people don't value or this generation or that generation doesn't value marriage or family at the same same or similarly to past generations, because I, I don't feel that it's true. Um, so his finding 
uh, or his stating that marriages today, the best marriages today, are some of the best marriages in history really gave me hope for the marriages for these younger generations. And I, I really like that reframe a lot. Well, are you guys ready? Shall we bring on Dr. Finkel? Yeah, yeah. let's do it. All right, without further ado, um, let's welcome Dr. Finkel. Welcome back to Attached, Summer Book Club Edition. This month's book is The All or Nothing Marriage by Dr. Eli Finkel. Dr. Finkel is a professor at Northwestern University where he has appointments in the psychology department and the Kellogg School of Management. In his role as director of Northwestern's Relationship and Motivation Lab, he has published over 150 scientific papers and is a contributor to the op-ed page of the New York Times. The Economist has identified him as one of the leading lights in the realm of relationship psychology. How amazing is that? Today, believe it or not, he is on our podcast. Dr. Finkel, welcome to Attached, and thank you so much for coming. I am excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, we are very lucky that Dr. Finkel has agreed to answer some of our questions and some of our listeners' questions as well. Um, Dr. Finkel, are you ready to dive straight in? Definitely. All right, here we go. So first up, we collectively as the podcast trio really, really love your incorporation <laughs> of uh, pop culture throughout the entire book. This is right up our alley. So during quarantine, we're wondering, have you seen anything good that you liked or disliked as it depicts love and marriage? Well, I've, I've actually spent a lot of time in quarantine dealing with that exact thing. I've been watching shows relevant to this question. I've been reading books relevant to this question. Um, I, I've been interested in one specific question in terms okay. of the, the, you know, how relationships, how marriage work, and it is the, the subjectivity of reality that Ooh. you and I can have the identical experience and yet yes. we could sort of like debrief on it later and who knows if we were actually in the same place at the same time. So there's been a lot of stuff that I've been catching up on. So I went back for like quite a ways and I, I finally read To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, which isn't really a marriage book, but it's definitely about the subjective uh, experience of reality. But there's been a lot of great stuff. Like um, there's a, a 2015 book by Lauren Groff, a novel called Fates and Furies, where the first half of the book is from her perspective and the second half is from his perspective, or maybe Ooh. I have that in reverse. But the, the book really comes together at the very end, but you, you get both of their sets of experiences. A similar conceit comes from a show that I had missed the first time around called The Affair, um, have you seen I've it? Heard, I I it. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen like the, just a couple of episodes, but I've heard that it's really, really good. Tell me about it. I think it's really good. It, I mean, it's it's not uniformly excellent on its okay. own on its own merits, but I think it is very, very good on its own merits. But for people who are interested in this question, that is, how can two people in, in the, in the uh, show, it ends up being more than two people, but how can people have the same exact experiences and yet not experience them the same way. I mean, literally down to the facts. And and so the affair, wow. the, the basic conceit in the affair, certainly the whole first season, by the way, for your listeners who've you know, watched The Wire, for example, this is huh. Jimmy McNulty from The Wire who's in this. Um, and this this show won awards. It's, it's, it's definitely a good show. But what's interesting is the whole first season, the, each episode is split in half, such that you get one person's perspective first and the other person's perspective second. And it's not, um, it's not formal enough that, that it's like the exact set of circumstances in both people's experiences. Okay. But in every episode, you're getting some of the same experiences from his and her perspectives. And they even manipulate stuff like how short was the cut on her dress the day that they met. Wow. Um, and in his mind, oh. it was a pretty high cut. Uh, you know, thigh line, and in hers, that's like not really what she was wearing. <laughs> wow, that 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 is amazing. I um, will definitely have to revisit that. It was very good. I mean, the, the other stuff that's been interesting to me. I, th there was a, a, a nonfiction book, a memoir um, from Danny Shapiro, one of I think our better contemporary memoirist, called Hourglass, um, that I finally got around to reading. It's very very short, um, but I, I jotted a couple notes that are related to this. So, so one of her Please. lines that I jotted was, yeah. uh, 
you know, I am no longer interested in the stories, but rather what is underneath the stories, the soft pulsating thing that is true. Um, and she talks about she'd been married twice when she was young, and now she's been married, I think, for several decades to her third husband. And she talks a little bit about what the difference is, like how, how is it that you knew when you were standing up there for the third time as a young woman that this was going to last? And she had a long observation that I liked. But one thing that I jotted for today is um, she was talking about what was special. And, and she ultimately says special was that I had no exit strategy. Special was that I understood that it was for life, come what may, for better, for worse. And right, this is sort of about the subjectivity of how we approach our relationships. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Not just the lived experience subjectivity, but also how we uh, approach yeah. it from the, from the very beginning as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's jump in and ask you a little bit about your own work then. Um, these questions come to us from uh, podcast listeners. So I'm gonna jump in with the first one. So how do you know if you're asking too little from the marriage? What to you are the bare minimum things that you must always get from your partner that you shouldn't look for elsewhere? Well, it's, it's an outstanding question. Um, also a question that people who have read my book will not be surprised to know I'm reluctant to answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, the reason why is that I think it is fair for people who get to the end of my book, I think it is fair to call it a self-help book. It is not a typical self-help book, partly because it has all the history and the sociology. Um, partly because it reviews how people are using time in, in society and how that's changed over time. So it's a pretty scholarly book. But even the self-help part, like the last, I don't know, maybe 40% of the book basically is self-help. It doesn't tell you these are the secrets. These are the things that you need to do in order to have a good marriage. Basically because I don't think that I know. Yeah. And I, I, I actually don't think anybody knows. And, and the reason why I don't think anybody knows or that anybody can know is that we're too different. That, that mm. my relationship isn't your relationship. I am not you. My wife is not, I'm not sure if you're married to a woman, but my wife is not your wife. And so the, the idiosync idiosyncrasies that we bring, not necessarily bad mm. ones, but like very individual elements that we bring to the relationship, um, are so strong in interpreting how we, uh, or, or in, in determining rather, how well the relationship's gonna go. I know that, you know, I have, um, at least growing up, struggled with attachment avoidance. It was hard to, to be intimate. I, I, found it struggle, I found it a struggle to be emotionally intimate with people. And to some degree, some of those things still last. Like if I feel ashamed about something or if I stub my toe, the very worst thing that my wife can do is like rub my back and come to me and say, oh honey, I'm, I'm so sorry. 99% of people probably want that, but it is yeah. literally the worst thing yeah. she could do. And it didn't take long for her to know that if she gives me five minutes, I'm gonna be fine and, right. and that that's the right way to handle it. So what are the, what are the expectations? Like what are the lowest amounts that you, you should take? I don't feel like I can tell people what they should want. That said, I'm kind of willing to, to, to speak in general principles. If you feel like this person brings out the worst in you instead of the best in a mm. real way, like not just today I got irritated, but in a right. long-term way, like I don't like me as much since we've been together, that's a red flag. Um, things that make you feel disrespected or seriously undermine your self-esteem, I mean, these are things that would be red flags. Would I say they're sufficient for everybody to cause a breakup? I, I don't feel qualified to judge, but those are the sorts of things that would get me thinking very seriously about leaving something, even something to which I'd made a lifelong commitment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was thinking that, um, well, I was thinking that uh, sometimes I, I think when working with couples um, uh, or even individuals, when they're asking the question, am, am I asking too little from my marriage? It's, it's probably more about the fact that they're asking the question than it is that I have an answer for specifically what their bottom line should look like. Yeah. Um, that that's a really pretty powerful flag, I think, about um, something's, something's not working for you here. And I think it at the very least makes sense that we explore what else you might be needing from this relationship and from your partner, as well as what else maybe you could be bringing to it. So long as there's um, psychological and physical safety and, and uh, other kinds of prerequisites for that. I think the asking of the question in and of itself is, is pretty interesting. I, I agree. I was actually surprised to hear that somebody had submitted that question because I thought the question people were always asking was the opposite. Am I asking mm. too much? 
And so I mm -hmm. didn't know, I mean, may, maybe in the therapy room, you get different sorts of questions, but, but mm -hmm. the, the main question I confront is, is commentators sort of scolding mm -hmm. people for asking too much of their relationships. Yeah, well, and, and maybe that's a good segue to this next question that we have here about uh, what your, your insights might be about interpersonal skills that are necessary to build and maintain an exquisite marriage. Okay, so this suggests that they're trying. I mean, I, I would mm -hmm. I would suggest that that there are many good lives that an individual can live without necessarily saying that the marriage is absolutely the thing that I am going to prioritize above all else, um, and really work to have one of these sort of spectacular things. Like I think a, people could have a reasonable life with a solid marriage and an exquisite artistic life, or or deep satisfaction through, you know, life with the broader family or with friends or at work. But if you're asking specifically about people who say, how lucky are we that we get to live in 2020? Because 70 years ago, 50 years ago, people really weren't even trying to have these sorts of connections. Marriage wasn't really about yeah. this sort of deep emotional, psychological fulfillment, self-actualization, mm -hmm. self-expression, authenticity, this level of connection. But mm -hmm. here we are in an era where that is normal, that people want those sorts of things. So is it, is it best for everybody to want those things? Probably not. Um, mm -hmm. But for those of us who want those things, are willing to work at it and have a basic amount of compatibility with our partner, there is no better time to be alive. Mm -hmm. um, and the, these are you know related to the sorts of uh, issues that people talk about in psychotherapy. This is trying to understand who you are, trying to communicate effectively what your needs and your aspirations are, trying to listen effectively to who our partner is. Ideally, we have such a deep understanding of our partner that we can even understand the, thing, understand the things that he's not telling us. Mm -hmm. um, that it's like, well, there seems to be sort of an unconscious block here, but then also we have the skills to be able to help him work through that unconscious block without making him defensive. And if this sounds hard, well, it is. It is. And it is. And, yeah. and, um, and that's why I, you know, I, with regard to this question, are we asking too much? On average, I think we are asking a lot and the average marriage is struggling from trying yeah. to do this much. But many of us, a, a substantial minority, are able to achieve that sort of connection, either through luck or through skill or through training or through hard work to connect at that level. And yeah, relative to 1950, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like that concept of a good enough marriage and yeah. those exquisite relationships we can find in in other places, whether like you said, it's through art or friendship or work or whatever it is, a good enough marriage is literally good enough. That's okay, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of, you know, a lot of people I think have really been trying to drive home that point. And it's not the mm -hmm. main point in my book, but it right. definitely is one of the themes of the option. book is that, yeah, mm -hmm. there is no shame in this. And mm -hmm. probably for more than half of us, it's probably the right way to go. Um, it's interesting because I don't, you know, when I'd written that book, I, I didn't know the pandemic was coming. Um, and yeah. so I talked in this- Few of us did, few of us <laughs> did. Yeah, well, look, I mean, one out of four is not bad. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I talked in a cavalier way that was like, well, why don't you just go hang out with friends? Right. Well, I mean, so it, it's an interesting time where I thought in 2017, when I first published that book, that the, rela the, the marital relationship had taken on relative to the past an enormous amount of influence in terms of your overall quality of life. And I reviewed the evidence in support of that idea. I think that effect has only been magnified. Mm -hmm. That is all of these other things that, that I was like, go do this, go do that, go to this other thing. A lot of those are not available anymore. And so the, yeah. So the quality of this one relationship as important as it was in 2017 is suddenly even more important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kind of going back to the earlier question, this is another uh, question submitted by a listener and it's kind of a, it's, it's a pretty involved question like five or six parts here so my memory is a little feeble we'll see how i do <laughs> <laughs> at what point should a marriage end if these strategies consistently prove to not be working after how much additional investing increasing supply or reducing demand should a marriage officially call it quits if these strategies appear to be failing 
Is there a required amount needed before a marriage can or should end? Or based on this logic, should a marriage ever end if the couple is trying to utilize these strategies as intended? Well, look, in fairness to that, uh, that question writer, there is a strong through line throughout all six of those <laughs> elements. So I see how she or he, uh, you know, pulled them together. My answer here is, is actually related to the one I gave to whether or not expectations can get too low or too high. Um, when should you leave a, a relationship? Um, when should you leave a marriage? I don't feel like I or any human alive is qualified to tell you um, when that is. But I, I am happy to sort of talk about the principles that I would use in making those decisions and, and the principles that I, I think I feel comfortable saying I would advise other to, others to use. So when, when the, the person who asked that question asked about these strategies, I mean, the, the truth is in, in contrast, again, to a lot of more sort of simple self-help books, this, this book doesn't answer questions like, are you asking too much or asking too little or what are the things that work? It says, there's a range of expectations that you can have about your relationship. Those expectations may be good or bad as a function of whether it's realistic that the two of you are gonna be able to meet those expectations for each other. Mm -hmm. And so I don't feel comfortable telling anybody, these are the expectations you must have in this one relationship, even monogamy. I don't feel comfortable telling every one of your listeners, you absolutely must be monogamous and any consideration of consensual non-monogamy is, is a, you know, is a means, is, is a definite deal breaker for you and you should divorce. People have different preferences and different priorities and, and there's no really like down from Mount Sinai in the two tablets <laughs> rules for how a marriage is supposed to work. And, and anybody who's adopted a historical or a cultural perspective on this one institution, on the institution of marriage knows that it's not, not exactly arbitrary what we're looking for from our marriage, but it is enormously culturally relative. Right. I mean, if, you know, a lot of the people who are most conservative in America today about how marriage should work point to the Bible, but there's all sorts of polygamy in the Bible. It's all over the place, you know, and, and so, okay, so, so what I would urge people to do, and, and this, um, I'm sure every one of your listeners has read my book in its complete entirety, but Absolutely. in the last chapter of the book, <laughs> um, I, I get into, like, you the individual need to say like, these are the things that are crucial for me in mm -hmm. a, in a partner, right? For a lot of us, that's going to be like, we can live together and we're sexually monogamous. Like that, that is going to be a lot of people are going to say those are among them. We need to treat each other, you know, with respect. We need to be able to, to have a conversation when things get difficult. There, there's things that, that we might say are crucial in this relationship. Um, and so once you decide what those are, mm -hmm. then you work on those things if they're not going well. If you continue to believe those things are essential and have become hopeless, that this marriage will ever be able to meet those things that you have deemed absolutely essential to meet through this one relationship, mm -hmm. well, I don't want to tell anyone to divorce, but, but that is when I would start thinking seriously about it. Mm -hmm. that you're talking about your list of, of things you want kind of reminds me tongue in cheek of this show I just finished watching called Indian Matchmaking on Netflix. Have you I heard, heard of about it? it. Is it yeah. good? It is fascinating and it's yeah. well done, of course, and it's, it's very fascinating. But, you know, the matchmaker comes to each person in the beginning and says, what's your list of needs and wants? But also getting back to your um, uh, point in the beginning about like subjective reality. The matchmaker will be like, I'm never going to find this person a match. Like that list mm -hmm. is absolutely um, not really. Never, yeah, it's not realistic. realistic. And then she helps them kind of move it, mm -hmm. move their list. And, and, and sure enough, should they, they end up finding some match. But it was interesting that that list of making a, a, a mental list or maybe a physical list of things that you do want in a partner, I think can be yeah. important. I, um, you know, it's interesting. So I would make a distinction here that doesn't come through strongly in the book, but is a mm -hmm. major part of my broader research program. So, so there's two lists that just came up in our conversation. W yes. One is 
One is like, we've been married for a while and we're trying to figure out like what's truly essential here. And, and the, the question was framed in the context of divorce. So yes. I was focusing on like, things aren't going all that well. And, you know, is there, is there a moment when you pull the plug? When do you really work on it? When do you say, okay, I've had enough. Um, so that is one list. There's a separate list, which is like you going through the world and you know, there's no particular partner in mind, right? It, you know, those people on that matchmaking show, in principle, they haven't been set up with somebody by right. the time they give their list. They're just thinking what I'd like. And this is what eHarmony has always done, right? They, they say, tell me what you're looking for in a partner. Tell me about your personality. And, um, and we now know, I'm happy to talk about the, the studies, but this is now a 12-year research program. That stuff is bunk. And it is, <laughs> it is bunk because, so, so here's what would have to be true. I love the, that. Yeah, for that information to be useful, what would have to be true? So, Patricia, you fill out a questionnaire. Um, I don't want to make a. I'm going to sort of assume a heterosexual case. I have no sure, idea. Sure, sure. Okay. So, 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 Patricia and Sarah. Let's say you are both heterosexual women. Let's say you're both interested in in uh, meeting a man, or perhaps several. So, if we give you guys a survey. And, and ask you, to what degree is it important that the man be funny? To what degree is it important that the man be tall? To what degree is it important that he make a lot of money, that he be charismatic, that he be charming, that he be warm-hearted? And I give you this list. Well, you'll differ in terms of how exactly you weight all of those positive qualities. You know, Patricia, maybe being somebody being with somebody funny is absolutely crucial, but that's less important to Sarah, who really wants somebody who's warm-hearted. Well, it should be the case that then when we introduce you to a whole bunch of men right. and you rate those men on those qualities, that Patricia, you should be especially interested in the funny man, I hope I got this right, the funny man relative to the unfunny man, but uh -huh. that shouldn't matter as much for Sarah, who should really be into the warm-hearted man and not the other man. We've now run like every type of study to show this, including sort of speed dating studies where we introduce you to a bunch of partners, including studies within marriage, and there is no difference. So both mm. of you like funny people mm. more than like really dull people, and both of you <laughs> like people who are um, you know, warm relative yeah. to jackasses, but, <laughs> but your idiosyncratic assumption that you are mm. somebody who really needs somebody funny, mm -hmm. but these other people don't care as much, that is false. <laughs> we can't find any evidence no matter how we do the study. So, so the idea that we go through life with this list of these qualities that we want or deal breakers, we are, we are cutting ourselves off at the knees when we sort of swipe left on people who don't hit those because <laughs> we're basically not predictive of how attractive we are to those people. Right. Yeah, I love it. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I also heard in this question um, or this collection of questions, I think this, um, this idea here of um, the need in relationships to both be completely vulnerable and also feel completely safe. So um, at, the sa at the same time, which is a really interesting kind of um, dialectic process we're wanting from our relationships uh, that is really kind of all of the things together. Um, and so I, I'm wondering if, um, and, and I think you talk about this in the book, but some of this taking stock of your relationship and what your bottom line is, and then leaning into investing further or trying some of these evidence-based strategies um, requires some vulnerability. So I, I wonder I, I wonder if, um, if you hear that too in these questions and, and how much uh, that is probably important in choosing whether to continue to invest. Yeah, I mean, there's this, you know, this discipline that we on the inside call, you know, relationship science or relationship psychology, like the empirical, you know, data-based way of testing these ideas. And to my mind, the single most important insight in that research space is you have to choose. You don't get to be totally safe and totally mm -hmm. intimate. And, mm -hmm. and because, because the not the only definition, but but a necessary component of intimacy is you can hurt me now. Right. And so either you can not put yourself in a position to be hurt, or you can really understand what it feels like to be, you know, intimate. I don't mean sexually intimate, although that's sort mm -hmm. of relevant too, but but deeply emotionally intimate. Right. And mm -hmm. how people navigate, I, I think, I forget if you called it a dialectic, but I think that's right. Mm -hmm. Like how people navigate this at, at the very minimum tension between mm -hmm. I don't want to get hurt and I don't want to be vulnerable and I don't want to put myself in that position, but I also don't want to be like alone and fundamentally right. disconnected in this world. Right. And so how people navigate that is absolutely crucial. And, and yes, uh, I mean, if, if, if one of the conclusions you, you drew from my book, and again, this is just in the relationship psychology literature more generally, is you can't have a deeply 
intimate, deeply meaningful relationship without mm-hmm. making yourself vulnerable. That is absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Actually, um, sorry, one more thing about that. This mm-hmm. sort of goes back, I mean, Arthur Schopenhauer, the, the, uh, the, I think, 19th century German philosopher talked about this, this, um, the porcupine problem, I forget what he called it, the parable of the porcupines and the idea is that they want to sort of huddle together so that they can get mm-hmm. each other's warmth. But then if you get too close, you can get stabbed by one of those spears. And to some degree, that's what all of us experience in our intimate yeah. relationships. Mm-hmm. Like we want the closeness and warmth and love that comes with intimacy. But once we're there, you know, we can actually, mm-hmm. we can say to other people or they can say to us, do things that are actually deeply wounding and we get sort of stabbed a little bit and we pull mm-hmm. back. And <laughs> That I, that I think is a useful metaphor for how mm-hmm. we how we approach yeah. intimacy in relationships. Well, and that and that porcupine dance potentially being an opportunity for using some of that growth mindset that um, being stabbed doesn't necessarily need to be an, an end all. Um, it can be also an opportunity for us to kind of address and readdress how this relationship works. That's right. You're you're talking about this idea that actually comes from the education space. Um, that mm-hmm. this woman named Carol Dweck, who does research on on how people think about intelligence. This is where this all started. Do you think of intelligence as like fixed, like plaster? You have it or you don't, mm-hmm. or is it? I forget the metaphor. Something like malleable, like putty. That's not exactly what she has, but is it something that you can cultivate and develop? And so, over the course of several decades, she's shown that that among students who say fail a math exam those who think that intelligence is something that you can cultivate end up studying harder after that and then doing better in math subsequently those who feel like you're, you either have it or you don't tend to give up because they say math, math isn't for me and mm-hmm. and they they don't do it and yes the same principles apply in the relationship context are you somebody who thinks that compatibility is a thing and it's there or it's not there in which case, what does it mean that we're having all this trouble communicating and we keep fighting? Or are you somebody who thinks, look, relationships require cultivation. And in fact, having conflict mm-hmm. is an opportunity to learn more about each other. Well, those people mm-hmm. are going to bounce back better from conflict. I should say here, here again, I'm not willing to make the absolutist claim right. that mm-hmm. you should be one or the other, right? Like, like you're, all of what I just said was just about what's in people's heads. I mean, what is intelligence really like? Is it really like plaster or putty? Well, probably somewhere in the middle. But but what's interesting mm-hmm. about this work on, on growth mindsets, including some of our own work, is the objective reality isn't relevant to the questions we're studying. So maybe compatibility is absolutely essential. Maybe it is not absolutely essential. But how you think about compatibility has an enormous impact on how you navigate things when they get challenged. Wonderful. So. Um... So you're naming in, in all these different ways, I think, um, that, that we're not going to name what is absolutely, uh, absolutely essential. And then this next question from this listener is going to ask you for that. It's going to ask you to bring that tablet down from the mountain. So you, you might just decide to pass and, and suggest Call that listeners Moses. have already heard the answer. Yes, that's Moses. right. We'll just refer to um, you as the Moses of relationship science. Yeah. Yeah. Right, that's right. I think Moses Which, had a stutter, so things might slow down a little bit on the podcast, but we'll do it the best we can. But you could add that description to your CV, and then the next people who introduce <laughs> you would this. say, "That's right." Your next for your next podcast. And and also, but we, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we do have a listener that once again is interested in a different way about what you might say is the the one thing that is absolutely essential um, for having a long and happy marriage. Well, look, I mean, depends what she means or he means by happy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm willing to say if, if he or she is willing to limit the question and he or she is not here, so let's just limit the question mm-hmm. to say something like, are there things that I can do to increase the likelihood that my marriage makes it for the long run and hangs together fine? Then yes, I mean, I, I think that, that lowering your expectations is a really good way of doing it. Remember that at, at any level of actual experience that you're having, having lower expectations makes you happier, right? So you're having like six units of happiness. How happy is that? Well, you, you wanted four, so you're pretty stoked. <laughs> or you wanted eight, so you're pretty disappointed, right? Yeah. And, and, and the reason why, I, you know, and I hope this comes through in the book, the reason why high expectations can be valuable is because you try to connect at a level that you wouldn't otherwise be trying for. That's the upside of expectations. The downside of expectations is no matter what you're experiencing, you would be happier with that experience if you'd expected less. Right. So for this question, like, 
this question doesn't seem to be about exquisite in perpetuity. And I actually think that that is too much to ask. It's exquisite mm -hmm. in perpetuity. Few of us should should try to do that. It's more about bouncing between exquisite and fine over the course of <laughs> yes. when things are stressful, when the kids are young, um, you know, those sorts of things. But but if I if somebody said to me, really, I'm willing not to have it all. Um, what I really want is stability. I want to I want to have a relationship where we build a home together and that is a stable environment for my children, and that doesn't have a lot of bickering. Um, I would say try to lower your expectations about what this relationship is going to provide. Um, don't view it as your primary source of emotional fulfillment. Um, you know, sort of go down your list and find ways that you can say, even if I don't achieve this through the marriage it's still okay. To the degree that you've gotten that number to be very small, then you're more likely to be like, yeah, it's good. We're rolling along and it's and it's solid and I'm happy. And, and again, happy will be within the broader context, not just of your marriage, but with your life, right? With your friends and with your career and with your hobbies. Like, like there's a way to build a very good life that way. And so that, that I think would be my advice to the person who says, how can I feel most confident that we can do it for the long run? It would certainly involve the sorts of things that relationships people often talk about, trying to cultivate communication skills and those sorts of things. In terms of my book, I think, I think it's really more about going through your list of what you're really asking and stripping it to the bare minimum. Or maybe not the bare minimum, but stripping out the stuff that's gonna be tricky for you guys. Mm -hmm. Um, so this next question kind of jumps to the beginning of, of your book. So you reframe uh, marriage disillusion and this concept of broken families as an effect of uh, societal and cultural stressors, stressors over, over the years, um, rather than like this reduction of marital and family values, and uh, which is a, that, that reduction of marital and family values is a very common like narrative in the media and um, even some arms of relationship science. So your reframing of that was was quite un uncommon um, for, for, for me at the first read at least too. Um, so I'm curious how you um, came to that understanding of what's happening with marriage and, and family from that, to me, a very different perspective. Yeah, boy, there's a lot tied in there, all of which I find exciting to think about. So. Let me just state at the outset mm -hmm. that I don't think that alternative view that you were talking about is is wrong exactly. That that is, if we were to like take a, a you know a, a sample of people, some of which some of whom think, you know, sustaining a long term marriage is a really important thing to me, and some of whom are like, well, I don't know if it happens, it happens. I think that will predict whether those people actually sustain a long term marriage or not. So so it's not that people's personal goals are irrelevant. Um, mm -hmm. Not at all. I think people's personal goals are enormously relevant and being committed to your relationship is largely a decision that you make and that that decision is enormously consequential. So I, I don't want to sort of take the individual out of this. Right. I, I also, also in fairness to, I guess what we would call the other perspective, I do think that, that if we were to look at the 60s and 70s, really like 1965 to around 1980 or so, when the divorce likelihood went from something like 25% to 50% within yeah. like a 15 year period, I do think a lot of that was cultural in that people decided uh-uh marriage as it exists now is unacceptable and it comes at too great a cost including to things like my personal well-being me feeling authentic in my life like the strictness of the gender roles i think this was harder for women than for men but i don't think mm -hmm. it was great for men either yeah um, so I think all of this is to sort of support the other side that says, I guess you could call it the conservative side that says that if we only valued marriage enough, it, it would be better. And I, and I think there would have been a reasonable case for what I guess we might call the, the sort of conservative perspective on this. If things hadn't shifted like they did after 1980, I mean, I think a lot of people in the U.S. think divorce rates are skyrocketing, but that's false. 1980 was the high watermark, and they've basically come down since then. And among people with college degrees, which is probably the majority of your listeners, divorce rates are down starkly. They're down almost by half by comparison to 1980. And so, so what I play with in the book is the idea that what happened in the 60s and the 70s is that the 1950s marriage shattered. And it took something like a generation for society to figure out, well, if that's not what we're doing anymore, 
you know, the, the June and Ward Cleaver, you yeah. know, he kisses her goodbye and goes off and she's got the three homes, three kids in the suburbs, which frankly was never that widespread anyway. It was sort of like the middle-class white marriage for a right. while. Um, but anyway, setting that issue aside, um, that, that type of marriage no longer worked for uh, a generation of people who thought, I'm not willing to subjugate my personality, my sense of self to very, very strict dogmatic rules. Now, again, that's a way of thinking that liberals like more than conservatives. And so the question is, what are going to be the long-term consequences? Conservatives were, I think, very worried with good reason that this was just going to destroy the institution of marriage. And in a sense, it did. But what happened is that a new vision emerged. And this, the, 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 the contrast that was so tricky to imagine among people who were so fearful about the future of marriage in, say, the 1970s is how can we simultaneously make marriage about the pleasure of the individual spouses and build an institution that's oriented toward 50 years of monogamy and you know respectful treatment and no divorce? Like, that seemed incompatible. And the idea that I play with in the book is that what we did in the 60s and the 70s, and I think we're still working on this, is we adapted from this sort of hedonistic selfhood, from this like, Mm -hmm. I should not be frustrated and I should, you know, maximize the amount of pleasure I have in my life to a more meaning-based sense of selfhood. And Americans by the boatload have decided that what is self-interested, what is self-expressive for me is to build a meaningful long-term marriage and a very intensive, uh, intensively parented brood of children. Now, why have we decided this? Was it obvious in 1970 we were going to make that decision? I'm looking at you, Jacob. You know, no, no. I mean, it, it was not at all self-evident to me, but that is the vision that has come forward. And among college-educated people, especially college-educated liberals, it's, it hasn't become the the sort of drugs and hookers vision that people were worried about. Yeah. Like, what do we do? It's a pathetic, embarrassing life. We don't do the drugs. All we do is sit there and like work on piano with our kids. And so this, that, this that vision- That echoes really strongly yeah. for me. That echoes real strongly. Yeah. Yeah, and and so you should be doing the drugs. Huh? You should be doing the drugs. I mean, listen, Maybe. listen to your podcast. If you are listening to this right now, Whoa. go with the drugs. Go with the drugs. Done. I yeah. also really, really liked your emphasis on uh, these economic stressors, though, yeah. too. How much we we really focus on working uh, work and all these economic pressures, and how that really is also driving this marital dissolution. Our marriages just can't handle this intense external stressors that we're putting on it right now, both from our, the economy and, and, and the workforce. And I really liked your reframe of, of that. And would yeah, love this to is another one. the mountaintops too, all the time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is another one that I think um, hopefully maybe can be a detente between the left and the right and the marriage wars. Because I think what we have here is 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 a very unfortunate intersection of broad cultural change with broad economic change. And that that has worked really well for the people on this phone call um, or this, this podcast, right? Like we're doing fine with the idea that we've got this self-expressive vision. And so what do we do? We get the babysitter and we see the play and then we, you know, that's the matinee and then we have dinner and we, you know, talk about it, right? Like, I mean, yeah, it's it's not ever easy to have a self-expressive marriage, but it is a hell of a lot easier when that's what your Saturday looks right. like. The, the issue is the, the vision that Hollywood has also um, sold us about the self-expressive marriage has indeed been, been um, adopted up and down the socioeconomic ladder. What hasn't been adopted up and down the socioeconomic ladder is the ability to find the stability of life, to get the babysitter, to connect about these sorts of things. And so most of us are looking to the top of Maslow's hierarchy for the marriage. We really want these emotional, psychological sorts of connections. And doing that when you're working three jobs, each of which which requires a separate bus trip, and you find out what your schedule is going to be just the day before, like, let's stop lecturing people about dates. Like, yeah. like and, and then they finally get to their date night and what do they have to talk about? How they're going to pay for the medical bill, how they're going to pay for the car repair. Right. And so, so I actually think the culture that we have is 
particularly well, uh, poorly suited to the level of economic inequality that we have. Mm -hmm. So kind of building on that, do you have any recommendations for our, our listeners to help kind of strengthen that relationship to, to buffer or counter all of those external pressures when they have all of these things going on in their life? How do they cocoon that relationship? Do you have any? So I, in the book, I, I introduced this metaphor of, you know, you think we all think of, we all have a mental image. Certainly your listeners are going to have a mental image of Maslow's hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. With the physiological and safety needs at the bottom and the belonging needs in the middle and the esteem and self-actualization needs at the top. And I argue that, that if you sort of track the history of marriage over time, we've basically gone from the bottom, right? In 1800, people were literally looking to their spouse for survival. I'm not right. exaggerating. Food, clothing, shelter, literally. And then, you know, by the 1950s, you know, love was dominant. And now we still care about love, but we also are looking to the top of that hierarchy. So I, I sort of redefined that in terms of a mountain. And I, yeah. I, I give this metaphor of mountain climbing that says, like, Th that says we shouldn't, pro most of us probably shouldn't be looking to the summit of that mountain in every minute of every day of our lives with our spouse. That, that probably there are times to come down to base camp and don't worry if it's been a few weeks and you haven't had sex or you feel like, ugh, we've been irritated with each other for a while because now's not the time to work right. that out. There's a brand new baby at home. There's a new cancer diagnosis. The world is like falling apart due to political unrest and mm -hmm. pandemic. Like there might be times when you don't, there will be times when you don't have the bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully you've hunkered down effectively enough. You haven't started to hate each other during that process. And I do have sort of love hacks that I recommend for that section. And then it's like, wait a minute, we seem to have a moment to breathe again. What are you doing, Foxy? Like, hey, can we get some date night time for the two of us or some alone time for the two of us? And so the, this, this, um, this sequence of base camp and then, all right, we've got some bandwidth now. Let's go for the summit. And then yeah. really enjoy that. I mean, Maslow talked about peak experiences, like like pursue those when you have the bandwidth. Right. But I think there will be in most good marriages, multiple year stretches where you're hunkered down at base camp. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Yeah. Uh, part of our audience is, consists of practicing couple and family therapists. How do you think the strategies you outline in the book could be helpful for their practice and their work with distressed couples? Well, you know, I think it's necessary to start with the caveat that I have no training in treating um, couples. I'm a social psychologist, a basic social scientist. Um, so I would certainly trust the people in that room to have the expertise that, that I do not have. There are, first of all, I, I think it can be useful to, to think about this sort of as a, uh, think about the ideas in the book as like a background framework, this, this idea, like even what we were just talking about with, you make these sort of pushes to the summit and then you come down to base camp, you know, is a useful metaphor probably for many couples that are struggling, right? That are thinking, it's been so long, we, you know, we stopped having sex and we, we just don't connect anymore. Like we don't hate each other, but it feels like the things that got us together are absent maybe the base camp metaphor is useful to them, especially if they've got, you know, a two-year-old and a newborn and no wonder they're not mm -hmm. connecting, right? It's like a reminder that, that is, I think, I think often comes as a, as a deep sigh of relief um, to people who are struggling with that. Um, a second thing is there, there are, um, I mentioned briefly before, there are these ideas that, that I, I'm calling love hacks, which is, mm -hmm. um, you know, a set of scientifically, um, I don't want to say validated because who knows, right? There could be additional science, but scientifically supported procedures. And, and in contrast to procedures that I talk about, like going all in, which is like really mastering our communication and making extra time for sex and having date nights. Those are the sorts of things that people like us are often telling, um, you know, couples to do. Um, and then there's other things which I've been talking about, like lowering expectations. Those are two different strategies, but there is this third one um, that isn't really necessarily about investing more and it isn't really about asking less. It's about, can we be a little bit more efficient with whatever bandwidth we have? And um, so all of the things that I've called love hacks, I sort of define them in terms of there are things you can do by yourself. That's the first defining feature of a love hack. And the second one is they don't take much time or energy. And so uh, we give a bunch of examples. I mean, one, one of the ones that I think is probably actionable um, in the therapy room is 
we, this is some, some of our research from our own lab, is we have people try to think about conflict in their relationship from the perspective of a neutral third party who wants the best for mm -hmm. everybody. And I call this the marriage hack. And the, the idea, and, and so we actually ran the study, I, I won't sort of bore you guys with the details of the actual experiment, but we have causal evidence. This was an intervention and with, you know, with married couples over time. And we found that, that this process of trying to just remind people when you have conflict, try to think about it from the perspective of a neutral third party who wants the best for everybody, gets them out of their myopic, I'm definitely right, you're definitely wrong, and they can only see it through their own two eyes. They have this external third party perspective, benevolent external mm -hmm. third party perspective. And so we found some effects that we hope to find, like that, that is relative to people in the no intervention group, those people were happier in their marriage over time, um, even though this whole intervention over the course of the year only took 21 minutes. This is what I mean by love hack. It's short and sweet. Mm -hmm. But the thing, the thing that was cool is we got effects I didn't even expect. So passion increased, right? So it wasn't wow. just that we are less angry with each other and how we manage conflict. It looks like handling conflict when you're adopting this generous third party perspective makes your marriage hotter too. Nice. Yeah, I think um, I've used this um, and recently I've used it very recently and now uh, thought about it in terms of kind of how you're describing uh, in your book here um, and also used it as a therapist in terms of asking um, not only what do you think that your your partner might say about kind of how you're describing this, but also what do you what do you think I'm about to what do you think oh, I'm yeah. about to say? Because <laughs> um, I wondered that. Yeah. yeah, they can get there pretty. They can get there pretty quick. Um, no. So, so I, by the way, this is a study we haven't run, and I totally agree with you. I, I've thought I've mm -hmm. thought this too. Like, what if your goal? What What if the the manipulation had not been think about this from the perspective of a third party, but rather think about it from your partner's perspective? And I agree that that could be a promising way to go. I do think there could be a level of anger. In the sure. Yeah. That actually, where that where that manipulation would reverse. Yeah. I'm sorry, where, where, it would, um, where it would have a, a negative rather than just a nothing or a positive effect such that it's like, well, he thinks that because he's such a yeah. freaking asshole, right. because he right. never respected <laughs> right. me anyway. Right. Yeah. right. Negative attribution yeah. at the moment. Yeah. Absolutely. Or, or a level of shame sometimes too about, well, yeah. they, they think so negatively about me because I, I really am not very deserving of wow, yeah. of all of this, and um, which which either way, I mean, therapy is all about timing. Um, yeah. I have to make sure my expectations match too. But um, but I think either way gives me more data, even if it doesn't end up being an intervention that shifts them in a positive regard. It still gives me more information about how they view their relationship, and then I can kind of intervene there too. Um, but I, yeah, I think it's uh, it can be helpful just to think about shifting perspectives um, at the basic, and then hopefully kind of shifting that towards a strengths-based view. Totally fascinating. You gotta let me know how that goes in the therapy room. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I for sure will. <laughs> I am curious um, uh, if you had the opportunity to go back and uh, write an epilogue to this book or an update uh, to any pieces that you included since you finished writing several years ago, um, what changes you might make or what things you might add since, since this book has been finished? Boy, um, I mean, I've been more happy with it than not. So, uh, you know, there's always a risk and this sometimes happens with some of the scholarly articles I've published. It's like, eh, like we didn't eh. quite get that right. Cause mm -hmm. you know, you could work on something forever and eventually you have to stop working on it and send it out yeah. into the world. Yes. I've been mostly, I mostly think I, that there's another thing that I think like in a big way I, I got badly wrong. I think the biggest thing that's happened is COVID. Yeah. And I think it's too early to know what that epilogue will say. But I wasn't writing it for a world where going outside your house was not only dangerous for you, but potentially turns you into a murderer. Um, yeah. And, and that, that puts some constraints. I mean, when I, I, mean, I, I was very, I, I talked about it earlier in this, in this um, podcast, you know, I was, well, yeah, you like to bowl, go bowling. You like to get drinks with friends, get drinks with friends. Well, psych, um, all of those are <laughs> off the table. Mm -hmm. So, so I think, I think that if I had an epilogue, it would be living in the time of COVID or love in the time of Corona, if you prefer. Mm -hmm. And it, and it would be 
less about what gets changed and more about how those ideas get applied into a very changed world. And if I had to guess, again, I haven't written this thing or thought deeply about it, I, I do think one of the first principles would be about lowering expectations. Like mm -hmm. we are going through an indefinite period where look, if you're psyched that you're sort of hold up with your partner all the time and you can talk and have sex, and I mean, it can be great. Some couples I'm sure are indeed thriving because they get more time together than they thought. Like this is in some sense an amazing windfall for the relationship. But my guess is that that is not true for the median couple. I think for the median couple, um, there is a struggle um, to deal with this stress and the change in lifestyle and the fact that we're now educating our own children at home, many of us while trying to work two full-time jobs, which so far as I can tell is a literally impossible task. Totally. 100%. So how are we not fighting? And boy, wait, why haven't we had much sex? Well, I would say chill. Eventually COVID will go away. The kids will go back to school and you guys can hang from the rafters. <laughs> Beautiful. Cool. Well, thank you so very much, Dr. Finkel. Before we let you thank go, you. Is, is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we go? No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for uh, having people read my book. I hope you have some exciting uh, exchange through the podcast and it's been just super fun talking with you guys. Absolutely. Um, so thank you everybody for listening and of course a special thanks to Dr. Finkel. If you have any questions or recommendations for good or bad advice, email us attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on our socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Also remember, season two launches September 1st. What? <laughs> Attached is hosted by Patricia Robertson, Sarah Woods, and Jacob Priest. Edited by Kylie Hubbard. Music by Robbie Robertson.